you take your Bibles as you're standing there and we recognize that we are servants of the risen King. And as he speaks, we stand ready to respond with all our hearts, soul, and mind. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, 27 through chapter 2, verse 2. Philippians 1, 27, chapter 2, verse 2. If you need a pew Bible... Page 1,165. Listen to the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Let's pray. Father, we come and we realize it is because of your mercy that we are united together as one body, one family. We are united across the nations of every language, tribe, and tongue. Our unity is in you, Father, in your Son who reveals you and your Spirit that applies it to our hearts. Father, may the unity of your Trinity be manifested in us as your people, and may we realize that Uh, This is what the world needs. This is what the world needs to see. And so prepare our hearts now, for we all have areas and places where we need to grow, where we need to repent, and where we need to claim your promises more. So open our ears that our hearts may be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you see, today we are returning to our series... In the book of Philippians, a series we are calling Joy in the Journey. It's a series we began actually last summer, and we made our way through all of chapter 1 last August and September before taking a break uh, for our World Outreach Celebration with a series on missions, and then followed by a series uh, related to Christmas, and then our series on Zephaniah as a New Year's series. And so today, now we are continuing in this book of Philippians, and we're continuing here in chapter 2. Philippians is a book that's dripping with joy, and surprisingly so, because it's not what anyone would really expect given Paul's circumstances. And what were those? He's, well, he's under house arrest. He's in a Roman prison, and yet Paul writes about true joy in this letter. In fact, the language of joy just permeates throughout this letter, occurring some 16 times. Paul himself, he radiates with this contagious joy, and though he is writing 
under house arrest in a Roman prison, he can say, I rejoice, so you rejoice. And so what we see here is life doesn't have to be easy in order to be joyful. Ease of living and joy have little to do with each other. Paul is showing us in this letter that joy is not really the absence of trouble, but rather the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. In fact, Paul's whole goal in writing this book is to show us that it really is possible for us as Christ followers to have joy in our journey here on this earth. So as a, a review, what is the big picture of the book of Philippians? What is the main idea? What is the theme of the book of Philippians? Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. Joy in the journey is experienced most fully by living a life that is Christ-centered and gospel-driven. And while the language of joy permeates the book of Philippians, what what Paul makes clear here is that joy is experienced most fully By living a life that is Christ-centered and gospel-driven. In our Declaration of Independence, we have a few guarantees in that document. It says that you're guaranteed life, you're guaranteed liberty, and you're guaranteed the pursuit of happiness. And so we live in a country where people are pursuing happiness. The problem is very few people are actually finding it. In fact, out of a survey... Studies reveal that two-thirds of Americans claim to be unhappy. Why? Because real happiness, true joy, is not found by direct pursuit. It's a byproduct of pursuing Jesus Christ in living out his gospel mission. This is why Paul writes in chapter 1, as we saw in our earlier in our study here in verses 12 through 14, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me. Well, what's happened to Paul? Well, he's in prison. He's under house arrest. And he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so Paul's joy is not dependent on his circumstances, rather it's dependent upon his Lord. And although he's been in prison now for almost four years, he is still rejoicing. He writes just four verses later after this, he says, what then only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. And so even if he should be sentenced to death, for proclaiming Jesus, he would still rejoice. That's what Paul's saying. Why? Because as we saw in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. And so as long as you live for yourself and try to find happiness for yourself, you'll never find it. In fact, most people that pursue that path of life end up being miserable and rather hard to live with. It's only when you turn from yourself to Jesus Christ who takes over your life and you begin to live for him and his purposes that you begin to find true joy. You see, the more you do as you please, the less you will be pleased with what you do. But when you say, forget me, I want to live for Jesus, I want to live for the cause of the gospel, 
The byproduct of that is joy. This is why Paul exhorts us now. In fact, it's the very first command in this whole book. It doesn't come until verse 27 of chapter 1 where he says, only this one thing, focus on this one thing, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, Paul knows He's living it out. He knows it by experience. He knows that joy in the journey is experienced most fully by living a life that is Christ-centered and gospel-driven and doing so in unity. Now, it's pretty obvious our world is marked by a great deal of disunity these days. Humanity is fractured, it's fragmented, and it feels like the very fabric of our society is coming apart at the seams. In fact, has there ever been a time, at least since you've been alive, when our country has experienced more animosity, more contempt, more vitriol, more hostility than we have in these last few years, really last 10 years? We're living in such challenging times, and it's difficult to find unity anywhere. And this isn't just the case out there in the world. Disunity is in the church, too. And so what we find here in this section, even at the end of chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 2, is this call now from Paul to Christian unity. Paul says, notice this in your notes, he says in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, complete my joy. How? By living in Christian unity. What would make Paul's joy complete is knowing that these believers at the church of Philippi are living in Christian unity. This is why he writes in verse 2, complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see, there have always been struggles of unity within the church of Christ. There have always been divisions in the church and disagreements among God's people, even going back to the New Testament. Paul's writing about this. That's why Paul writes so much in his epistles about pursuing, preserving, and even protecting unity. Because Paul knows that unity is essential for the gospel to advance. It's critical to the mission of the church. This call to unity, it actually begins, which is why we, in our scripture reading, we started in chapter 1, verse 27. Because that's really where it begins, where Paul urges us to live in this manner that's worthy of the gospel. How? Well, in those section of verses, he tells us by standing, not apart, but standing together for the gospel and striving together for the advance of the gospel. And so in this section, beginning in in the latter part of chapter 1, and now continuing all the way through chapter 2, Paul is highlighting for us, he's emphasizing for us, Two threats to our joy in the journey. The two threats are this. There's external opposition in the world. That's the first threat of our joy. But the second threat is internal division in the church. 
And Paul wants us to be united, especially as we face opposition in the world for living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. You see, Paul understands here that if the enemy can't overthrow the church from without, he will try to undermine the church from within. As William Barclay writes, there is a sense in which disunity is the danger of every church. You see, it is when people are really in earnest, when their beliefs really matter to them, when they are eager to carry out their own plans and their own schemes that they are most apt to get up against each other. The greater their enthusiasm, the greater the danger that they may collide. John MacArthur explains in his commentary, because fracturing Christ's church is one of Satan's major objectives, the challenge to preserve the unity of the Spirit is constant. A divided, factious, and bickering church is spiritually weak. It therefore offers little threat to the devil's work. It has little power for advancing the gospel of Christ. And so for this reason, Paul calls us, the church of God, the church of Christ, he calls us to Christian unity. Paul has emphasized the need already in the latter half of chapter 1. He's emphasized the need for courageous unity in the face of this external opposition. And now he begins to laser in. He begins to focus on the importance of Christian unity to counter the danger of internal division within the church. Paul actually issued the same call for unity in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 when he writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you be unified in the same mind and the same judgment. In other words, if we're going to stand together against opposition in the world, we must first stand together as a church by living in Christian unity. Now, one of the obvious questions is, well, what is Christian unity? Because however many people there is is probably how many definitions we could probably come up with. We will answer that question next Sunday because Paul does answer that question for us here in this passage. He even tells us, here's what Christian unity is, and he tells us, here's how to go about living it. And we will look at that specifically next Sunday. But this morning, what I want us to focus on is simply this call to Christian unity. This command for it, this importance of us to live in Christian unity. And what I want you to notice first and foremost here is, number one, that Christian unity is rooted in the unity of the Trinity. Paul writes in verse 1, look at it with me again. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And then you come to verse 2, he says, complete my joy. How? By living in unity. Paul's making here a very strong appeal for Christian unity. And what is the basis of his appeal? That's what I want us to see here this morning. Well, it's a theological basis. It's the unity of the Trinity. In other words, Paul grounds his call 
His command to Christian unity in the unity of the Trinity and the blessings that we experience in our relationship with each member of the Trinity. Paul begins with this phrase, so if there is any, but this is not an expression of doubt. The word if here, the if refers to certainties, not possibilities. Paul does not doubt whether these things are true of the Philippians or whether they're even true of us. He's not saying, well, if you really cared about the church, you'd get your act together and get unified. These four phrases that he uses in verse 1 here are what you call first-class conditionals in, in the Greek, which always assumes that the things that are mentioned are always true. And so the emphasis is... Since these things are true, rather than if these things are true. In other words, since these things that I'm writing here are true about you, you ought to live in unity with one another then. That's his basis. And so Paul is not casting doubt on the blessings that we experience as Christians, nor is he trying to shame us or guilt us into unity by calling our salvation into question. He's simply reminding us here that Christian unity is rooted in the unity of the Trinity and the blessings that we experience, the blessings that flow out of our relationship with the Trinity. And so in many ways, this parallels what Paul writes, even in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, where he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, what's interesting here, at least I find it somewhat interesting, is that Paul does not focus on our relationships with one another here first. He will later on in verses 3 and 4. But he doesn't focus on that first. Instead, he first appeals to our relationship with the Trinity. Why? Because Christian unity is not dependent upon natural harmony, but on supernatural bonding. And notice that Paul does not use any commands here. He doesn't use any threats or gimmicks here. He appeals to the unity of the Trinity that has eternally existed between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is the foundation. And even our motivation for Christian unity. Notice this. First of all, he says, since we have encouragement in Christ. The idea here is that we have, we do have encouragement from knowing Christ and being united in Christ. So I ask you, does anything lift your spirits more than knowing that we are eternally secure in our relationship with Jesus Christ? Nothing can take that away from us. It doesn't matter what the opposition, external opposition is in the world. Nothing can remove that. And so does it thrill your soul to know that you were once separated from a holy God without any hope, but now you have been joined to Christ through faith? On the cross, Jesus took our sins on himself. In exchange, you receive his righteousness. And so now Paul uses this phrase that he is famous for, that he uses all the time. You are now in him. You're in Christ, and Christ is in you. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? 
He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so when discouragement sets in, in this journey that we are living through, when it sets in, listen, Paul wants us to find encouragement in the reality that you belong to Jesus Christ. You are in him and he is in you and nothing can change that. And so let this truth Lift your spirits, especially in the midst of trials and suffering in, along your journey. When you don't think you can carry on, remember that you do, as a Christ follower, you have encouragement in Christ. Paul says, since that is true. Number two, he says, since we have comfort from love of the Father. Do you know the comfort of your Heavenly Father's love? Has the reality that God loves you with an everlasting love been a boon to your soul when everything around you comes crashing down? Have you ever found comfort in the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ? From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, according to Romans 8, 38 and 39. Have you ever experienced the God of all comfort that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so when you are hurting, when you are discouraged, remember, you have the comfort of the love of the Father. Paul says, since that is true. Number three, he says, since we have this participation in the Spirit. In fact, you can even use the word fellowship because they're interchangeable. They mean the same thing. Since we have participation or fellowship in the Spirit. In other words, every person who believes in Christ has the Spirit of God dwelling within them at the moment of their salvation. And that spirit, Paul says, is the one who unites us to Christ and and who unites us to one another in the body of Christ. In other words, the spirit is the source of our fellowship with one another. It is the source of our unity in our church. In fact, in fact Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.3, that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because as he says in verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit. So the unity that we share in the church is the unity that is based on God's own working to bring us together into one body and one Spirit. And Paul says, since that is true of you as a Christ follower, Number four, he says, since we have affection and sympathy from God. Paul, what he's doing here with this fourth phrase, he's just piling up one clause after another. He's just stacking them up. He's, it's, it's like he's saying, look, can't you see this here? I'm just piling it up. Look and see what you have in Christ. It's a rhetorical attempt to get us to ponder for a moment the reality of our salvation and to feel its glorious weight on us. 
And so I ask you, have you been ravished by God's love for you? Have you been overwhelmed by His mercy in your life that we just sang about? Is that something that kind of just blows you away? Listen, as Christians who are deserving, as we saw in Zephaniah, of God's wrath, but we have been what? Redeemed of our sins through Jesus Christ. We share in this common experience of being the objects of God's affection and sympathy. And this tender care from God should motivate us to live in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't it amazing what we have in our salvation in Jesus Christ here? We have these amazing blessings as Christians. And so Paul's point is clear. Here's what he's communicating to us. He's basically saying, here's his line of argument or his logic here. Since we have encouragement in Christ. Since we have comfort from our Father's love. Since we have participation in the Spirit, and since we have affection and sympathy from God, and since all these things are true of every Christian, we now have every reason to live in Christian unity. We, we could ask the question in the negative form. How can we not live in Christian unity? Since these things are true of you. How can we not do this? H.B. Charles summarizes it this way. The unity of the church is ordained by God the Father, established by God the Son, and sustained by God the Spirit. So when we do not make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, we are not merely rebelling against the spiritual leaders, corporate vision, or institutional progress of the church. We are actually sinning against the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. We are sinning against God himself. And so based on these realities about us, Paul says, complete my joy by living in Christian unity. Paul is telling us what it would take to fill his cup to the brim with joy. Think about this. Paul's where? At this time of writing, he is in prison. And he didn't know whether he would be acquitted and released or whether he would be convicted and executed. Paul has joy, but it's not complete. But there's something the Philippian believers can do to complete his joy. He doesn't ask them to send him money. He doesn't even ask them to help him to get out of jail. He tells them, listen, I have joy in Christ, even though I am in jail. But his joy, he says, would be so much greater if they were living together in Christian unity. In other words, Paul is saying, this, this right here, this is what would just send my joy off the charts. For you as a body of believers at this church of Philippi, and by application for us here at LifeBridge to live in Christian unity. Now, that may sound a little strange on the surface. But not if you think about it. Because there is a sense in which a minister's joy is tied to the unity and growth of the church. 
The Apostle John, listen to what he says in 3 John chapter 4. He says, I, I have no greater joy than, to, than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, if you're a parent here this morning, you know this very well. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1 says, A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son heartache to his mother. And so even a parent's joy is tied to the maturity and growth of their kids. And Paul, who is a spiritual father to these Philippian believers here, naturally longs for them to live in unity to complete his joy. This unity Paul is calling us to, though, it's not based on gimmicks and fads. It's not based on trivial things or temporary things. It is rooted in the unity of the Trinity. But notice, notice, oh, please notice where this unity is revealed. Number two, Christian unity is revealed in the community of the church. Warren Wiersbe writes, circumstances may cause us to lose our joy, but people can also bring trials that rob us of our joy. This was Paul's burden here. He was more troubled by the threat of division within the church than by the threat of being executed in a Roman prison. And so he commands the church at Philippi, to complete his joy by living in unity. Verse 1 tells us that Christian unity is the concern of God Almighty, but the opening line of verse 2 tells us that unity is also the concern of the Apostle Paul. Why? Because true spiritual leaders have a passionate concern for the unity of the church. That's Paul's concern here. And so far, Paul... He has had nothing but praise for this Philippian church. At the same time, he's heard. He's heard some rumblings that could threaten the church's unity. For all the good the Philippian church is doing, Paul hears from a member of that church by the name of Epaphroditus that there is some discord within the church, specifically between two women. Now, it's important to note here that this is not a doctrinal disunity within the church of Philippi. It is a relational and personal disunity and discord. Listen, in other words, all the members of the church of Philippi, they could all sign the same doctrinal statement, but there were some things about each other that just got on each other's nerves. That's true for most churches. That's even true for us here at LifeBridge. And so what's interesting is you go to chapter 4, Paul actually calls out these two women in the community of the church who weren't getting along, and he actually calls them out by name in this letter, Yodia and Syntyche. Paul writes in verses 2 through 3 of chapter 4, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women 
who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, there were some potential fault lines that were forming within the community of this church on which the church could split wide open and disunity could erupt like a volcano as people begin to take sides, which almost always happens. And Paul wants to nip it in the bud. And so he appeals to their salvation in Christ as a reality that should motivate these two women to reconcile and restore their relationship. Here's the point that I want us to see. Is that Christian unity is revealed in the community of the church. And so if you're the recipient of God's grace on the cross, then it ought to show itself in the church of Christ as well. Since it's true that to be a Christian is to participate in the unity of the Trinity, then it should also be true that we begin to live out that unity in community with one another. In other words, you can't know the triune God and not love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why the Apostle John, again, he writes in 1 John chapter 4, Verses 20 and 21, whoever claims to love God, yet hates his brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now the implication of all this is super important for us to realize, for us to note here. God has redeemed us to be a people in community with one another. Which means there is no such thing as, quote, privatized Christianity. Ask someone today who professes to be a Christian, hey, what church do you attend? And the common answer across the board is this. Oh, I don't go to church. Really? Yeah, I haven't been led to go to church. I worship God at home or at the park, in the woods. How easily we have been deceived to think that Christianity is all about me and my personal worship of God. But this way of thinking is utterly alien from what Paul writes here in Philippians, as well as his other epistles. Paul calls us to live in Christian unity, and this unity is always revealed in the community of the church, and it's rooted in the unity of the Trinity. Now, perhaps you're wondering, well, why is Paul making such a big deal about living in Christian unity? Come on, Paul, what's the big deal here? Because this unity that Paul is calling us to is gospel-driven. Remember, this section on unity begins in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul urges us to live in a manner that's worthy of what? The gospel. Here's the importance of Christian unity. Here's why Paul is making such a big deal about this. Christian unity is essential to advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why. 
You see, Paul understands how important Christian unity is to advancing the gospel because a church that struggles to stand together in unity will inevitably struggle to stand together in advancing the gospel. This is why Paul tells us in chapter 2, later on, in verses 14 and 15, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, our Christian unity, here's what it does. It adorns the gospel. And it makes it look attractive. It makes it look beautiful to a world that desperately needs Jesus Christ. The gospel is the reason that Paul calls us to live in Christian unity, a unity that is rooted in the unity of the Trinity. That's the basis of it, but it's also a unity that is revealed in the community of the church. Now, before we close in prayer, I just want to commend you as LifeBridge, as a church, for standing together in unity. I've been here my whole life in this church since I was five years old. I'm now 50. How old am I? I'm 54. My whole life since five years old, the last 19 years of my life as your pastor. And what I've seen by and large in this church is the kind of unity that Paul calls us to live out. Not perfectly. No church is perfect. And certainly we are not either. Most of the time, with very few exceptions, Christian unity has been a shining testimony of life bridge. And I'm so thankful for that. It's been wonderful to be part of a church congregation where this is true of it for the most part. And so I commend you, but I also want to encourage you to continue to live in Christian unity. And so my prayer, and I hope it will be your prayer, for our church is what Paul prayed for the church in Rome, in Romans 15, 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you make that your prayer this week? Your prayer over life bridge. Romans 15, verses 5 through 6. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you for your love for us, which is displayed in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the unity that is displayed in the unity of the Trinity. And we thank you that we as believers in Jesus Christ have the blessings that flow out of our relationship with the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And may you grant us the grace to live in unity as a church so the gospel may be advanced through our lives and ministries. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.